0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height, And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin
1: Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Down Under Roleplaying. Die Cafe. More King in Yellow.
0: And Stanton Friedman.
1: Over the Edge, the twisted RPG of counterculture conspiracy, weird science, and urban danger.
0: Reimagined for its third edition by its original creator, Jonathan Tweet, for a new generation of role players.
1: New narrative rules improve storytelling. New character traits propel drama.
0: Every conspiracy, every character, and every location is given a fresh new twist. The Edge is the weirdest city in the world. Get into trouble. Question your place in the crazed multiverse. Take a draught of madness. Transcend mortal limits. Fight a baboon! Along the way, you might find out who really controls humanity. Unless, of course, you've been working for them all along. Fast, dramatic character creation, laser-focused on creating dynamic protagonists.
1: A simple 2-die-6 resolution mechanic.
0: Inject shocking, unexpected outcomes through good twists, bad twists, and twist ties. Three strikes, and you're dead. But until you're risking that third strike, you can safely take big risks, electrifying gameplay with dramatic, exciting moments.
1: Plan your trip to the island you only think you remember by visiting at. Atlas-games.com slash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. Please remember, liberty at job one. Disarmament means peace. It's polite to speak English. And of course, paranormal activity is perfectly legal. Thank you for your consent. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, The Crunch of Doritos and the Benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. But what's this? The miniatures are actually beautifully carved campaign coins. And the (laughs) Doritos are, I don't know what the hell they are, some kind of vinegar. I don't even know what they have because it's a different land. It's a mysterious land. And Peter Frampton is upside down because we are heading to Australia thanks to Patreon backer Bill Cohen. Peter Frampton isn't just upside down. He's men at work. He's men at work. Exactly. When with the striking contrasts of a 230 year English occupation with millennia of indigenous culture, everything from bustling modern cities to remote natural vistas, Bill Cohen apparently works for the Australian tourist board. <laughs> And a global reputation for cheery citizens and deadly wildlife, I've always felt like Australia was an ideal setting for RPGs, yet we always seem to get, at best, a brief mention. Single tear falling up your face because you're upside down. How would you encourage GMs and parties to head down under? And I want to warn Bill Cohen and our other Australian friends and supporters and listeners that it is literally impossible that Robin and I will not attempt an Australian accent at some point during this segment.
0: <laughs> I don't know, Mike, you think that. Uh, um, no, I,
1: it, it could happen. Peter Frampton coming alive.
0: Right. Of course, the the challenge, if you are uh, from uh, elsewhere in the Anglosphere of uh, – Having things happen in Australia is it's that, uh, it's in the, uh, the marsupial valley, uh, if it, if you will, between the thing that is familiar and the thing that is unfamiliar. And it's a, a thing that to the rest of us is quasi familiar right. because it's like uh, Canada or the US or Britain, except somewhat different. And if you're going to. Uh, get the pleasures of familiarity. Uh, you know, you want to have your horror you want set to run it in your somewhere backyard. that, yeah, you will put it in your actual backyard. And if you want to, uh, experience an unfamiliar part of the world while you're starting with the earth, you're going to pick something uh, very unfamiliar. Whereas something I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, to, to go to Australia once and it's similar to Canada in many ways. Uh, you know, all the people are clustered along a hundred mile strip, except the difference is instead of being uh, clustered on the U S border. You're clustered on the, on the coast. And, uh, the, uh, the history of colonialism is quite, uh, similar. Uh, Australia was somewhat more overt in, uh, the way it attacked its indigenous population than Canada was.
1: And, and I, and I should point out by the way that, um, uh, saying English occupation gives short shrift to the many, many wonderful Irish people who occupied, Australia at the behest of Her Majesty's government.
0: Yes, there's some involuntary colonization (laughs) going on there, which, of course, is a thing that's uh, that's quite different. But you know, if you're in Australia, it's much like it's like. It's difficult to buy an antacid at a corner store because the word is different and it's a different brand. And also because,
1: being the happy country, they never have upset stomachs. Apparently that's
0: so. Uh, And, you know, the instead of having uh, seagulls grabbing your french fries in the park, you have uh, big black ibises,
1: which is pretty impressive. (laughs) And now we're edging into Australia as wandering monster table.
0: Well, yes. Well, it was mentioned (laughs) in the question that there are many dangerous animals to fight while you're there. So, So the question is, uh, how do we overcome that? How do we get people to go? Well, the first thing you do is obviously go to the obvious classic, which is Terror Australis, the yes. Call of Cthulhu uh, supplement, uh, which is now available in a brand spanking gorgeous edition uh, by, uh, and it's by Penelope Love and Mark Morrison et al. And, uh, if you want to have Cthulhu adventures, in, in Australia. That answers the
1: question. Buy that book and do what's in the book. Your problem is solve. And it's also good for any other horror adventures, because it's not just uh great races of yith, there's also bun yips and all kinds of other Australian weirdness and and magic and and lore and creepity creatures uh in the book. It's not just straight up uh Shadow Out of Time, the book. It is right. more than that.
0: Now of course Shadow of, Out of Time, the Lovecraft story, is set there and briefly mm-hmm. remind people what that story is about and what uh, your adventurers might encounter if they uh, get a sequel to that in modern-day Australia.
1: The Shadow Out of Time is about, of course, a, uh, a Miskatonic University professor who is possessed by one of the great race of Yith, uh, wakes up uh, with total amnesia, teaches himself uh, psychiatry in order to... psychology in order to figure out why he has these strange dreams in this big period of amnesia, and traces a bizarre pattern of global myth to uh, an ancient uh, race of cone creatures that uh, occupies people uh, by mental projection of the future. And then uh, he publishes his findings, as you do, and sure enough, a guy in Australia reads the Journal of American Psychiatry for some reason and says, oh, those glyphs you described from your nightmares, I found them on a big rock in Australia. You should come down here and dig them up. And then, sure enough, like an idiot, he does. And uh turns out it was not a dream. There was actually monsters in Australia in the Mesozoic past that uh, did time nappings. And he re- realizes that that is indeed where he had been immured in a cone body uh, back in the Mesozoic and goes and has a, a shrieking fit of the Jim Jams as a result.
0: Right. M- moving toward horrible clues, uh turns out um, because I'm going to generalize based on a current news story and a thing that Lovecraft wrote about. Uh, move toward horrible clues. So there's recently a story about a couple in New South Wales who discovered that uh, there was, as the uh, newspaper charmingly put it, a graveyard hidden in the walls of their house. Uh, okay. They were doing renovations, and they found all of these temporary grave markers uh, stuck in the walls. So these are the markers that you put up before the actual headstones are put up. And it right. just seems like sometime in the 1950s, somebody had a bunch of these spare... Uh, grave markers and you know uh, better not let them go to weiss so they put them on the walls uh as you know uh, a jury-rigged insulation or or something and then then the woman in the story says at first we were uh, rather spooked but now that we know the story uh it's all very exciting and that's uh how you can tell she's not a character in a role-playing scenario because knowing the truth about grave markers is exciting but never reassuring so uh, uh that can be a scenario right there now uh, the, uh, mockers and, uh, scorners in the audience will say, Hey, Robin, we could just move that concept, uh, to, uh, our hometown, but no, 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 you have to do it in New South Wales. Um, uh, so what other, uh, weirdo things, uh, happen in Australia that we can, uh, wrap, uh, scenario concepts
1: around? Well, I think one of the weirdest and most crazy things that happened in Australia is a thing that I, if it had happened in America, people would never shut up about it. But apparently, <laughs> uh, prime minister Harold Holt was out swimming in, you know, the ocean, whichever ocean it was, uh, in 1967, and he vanished, just disappeared right off the beach, swam out to sea and went away. And this is just a thing that Australians, I guess, are okay with, because... Again, they've they've internalized that the whole surrounding ocean of their of their little island is full of deadly poisoned swamp monsters. And so that's just what happens when you go swimming. There's a one in nine chance that you'll vanish forever.
0: Uh, a shark can eat your prime minister. Well, they they do have pretty uh they have a lot of prime ministers there. They have a, a lot of turnover. So losing one to a shark. I mean, is... Yeah, I
1: mean, but that's that's just because they're they're excited that they, yes. they, they like having prime ministers. It makes it makes for a change. And you get to say uh, that that that's the prime minister there. He's buying crisps right. or whatever. And,
0: and one thing that could have happened to him, in, in uh, other than being eaten by a shark, is that uh, it is also well known that Australia has teleportation gates. And boy, does it need them, because uh, even conventional air travel there is somewhat exhausting. But Charles Fort reports there is a case of a, a man in uh, the uh, Victorian era who was walking along Euston Road in London, and then all of a sudden the next thing he knew, he was uh, working... In Australia as a farm laborer. Uh, so not only are there teleportation gates, but apparently there's some sort of indentured servitude that comes with them and, and lost time. Uh, uh, that's why that's, they
1: have to have so many prime ministers. They trade them for farm labor.
0: Right. They're being, they're being teleported. Now I, I think a lot of us would like to teleport some of our political leaders. I can think of a couple. Just the two. Right. But the, the notion <laughs> of missing time, of course, brings us to uh, UFOs. And there are some uh, major UFO cases, uh, and some of them are kind of echoes of uh, famous cases. So there's the Cahill abduction. In which classic uh, gray aliens show up, and it's um, much like the Barney and Betty Hill case, but it happens in
1: '93. Ah, well, they, I mean that's that that may just be you know that they were behind the times. Well, yeah, maybe even the aliens are taking a while to, to get to Australia. Right? Yeah, I mean they've they've got a they've got to change planes in Hawaii, and it's just a nightmare. There's also a a, a lot of sort of standard uh, UFO sort of you know you can just look up Australian UFOs, but Australia has its own uh, Bermuda Triangle. Just like the Ruda Triangle or the Dragon Triangle in the North Pacific or the Michigan Triangle in Lake Superior or wherever the hell it is. I mean, we have our own triangle. We're not, we don't make a big deal about it, but Bath Strait is apparently even for Australia, a dangerous strait to be in and they keep losing ships and planes there. So that may be yet another vortex that is spawning, uh, UFOs and monsters and, and whatnot. And that would be a reason to, to go to Australia is you have to investigate this, uh, this, this vortex and it's not just, uh, disappearing prime ministers and, and making farm laborers show up, but it's also got weirdly time displaced UFOs that are doing the stuff that they already did in the sixties and the nineties. Uh,
0: and of course cryptozoology could be a reason why the, uh, why your characters go to Australia. Regular zoology in Australia is already messed up. Right. Uh, <laughs> so in addition to the, to the bunyip and, uh, the, uh, Tasmanian tiger, which, uh, is a real animal that disappeared recently enough. Uh, that uh, there's still uh, film footage of it. but uh, you And could the ahead.
1: Tasmanian wolf that people are hunting all the
0: time, the thylacine. Right. There's also, uh, in 1883, someone near Adelaide discovered the headless corpse of an animal that was like a pig except for its giant claws. Uh, <laughs> so you could be uh, headed there to find out what the heck happened with that, or uh, you could uh, have... Uh, sort of an outback invasion uh, scenario where they um, you play the doughty members of a uh, rural community as the uh, non-headless versions of these creatures uh, suddenly appear and decide to uh, wreak uh, clawed porcine vengeance upon you.
1: Uh, they've got a yowie, which is another kind of a monster. It's like a it's a it's like their Bigfoot, except it rips people's heads off instead of just being a gentle giant. It figures that, that, that it would be a malign, uh, poisonous Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, probably. It probably has poison spurs in its feet like a platypus.
0: Yes. Speaking of things that are poisonous, uh, things also fall on Australia. Now, profound students of uh, Charles Fort will know that uh, weird things fall everywhere. Uh, and so uh, spiders will sometimes uh, fall out of the sky. It's not the only place where that happens. Uh, but one thing that's, that seems particularly to fall on Australia are cinders and ash, with no known volcano anywhere to connect them to. So that uh, posits the possibility that uh, because you are down under, uh, that somehow Australia is uh, near a dimensional uh, portal that leads uh, to another upside-down world that is leaking its volcanic ash and and, uh, possibly even pollutants and uh, and junk, uh, possibly even space junk. Uh, down on australia so uh another uh plot hook could be that you're supposed to find the invisible stairs up into the sky that take you into that other world that they where you then go and explore and uh, make friends and fight with enemies and find out what's going on and so the placid uh happy city of brisbane for example could be your uh, basal operations as you keep uh, going up and and uh, Encountering the sky people who
1: are, uh, somewhat inconsiderately raining ash upon you. Or metal spheres. Uh, there's a number of metal spheres turned up near Broken Hill in 1963 that no one could explain what metal spheres were doing at all, but certainly at Broken Hill. And, uh, again, like disappearing prime ministers, everyone said, well, you'll get spheres, I guess, and then moved on with their lives. I think Brisbane, though, is a, is a thought in sort of regular history because that was MacArthur's headquarters during World War II. So during the World War II years, Brisbane will be blown up into one of those giant sort of a million people going and doing things type places that uh, role-playing adventures can tend to happen at. And whether you use that as your jumping off point for Pacific Theater adventure or for cargo cult adventure because you're going into the Solomon Islands to rid out um uh, uh, magic and whatnot, or you're just in Brisbane, because everyone is in Brisbane who has any money to spend and you need money for your trip to Skull Island or whatever else you're doing. I mean, Australia makes a great uh home base for anyone who's doing sort of the Indiana Jones era pulp adventure in that era, as well as, you know, the rest of Australia is, is lovely too, but Brisbane's where you've got. Any kind of NPC can show up in Brisbane and it totally makes sense in nineteen forty
0: three. Uh now speaking of uh the the world of uh of history, uh, that brings us to espionage and uh what is Project Bolide?
1: Project Bolide is actually the Australian government's uh UFO uh search uh group. It's their version of the Project Blue Book. And uh they ran it uh I guess out of Canberra, where you would run things if you're the Australian government. And it it it's a great employer or mysterious Toady, uh, too majestic, depending on what side of the, of the fence you want to be on when you're out UFO hunting in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Uh,
0: so since it's the sixties that, uh, your fall of Delta Green characters can go to Australia. Of course, there's a connection between, uh, Australia and Vietnam, which, uh, features, yes. uh, heavily in, uh, fall of Delta Green. So, uh, your prime minister disappearance happens in, in 67. 67. The metal spheres yep. happen in 63. Uh how else would you uh, get Fall of Delta Green characters involved in Australia?
1: I mean, part of it is that they can be, you know, assigned to go locate the old Pnecotic library or perhaps there's more, I mean, again, it's a whole library. Maybe the books have been dug up by somebody and are being sold on the Australian black market and they have to go there and shut it down. Uh Find out who has broken security on the uh Pnecotic site and uh, is digging around in it. And I believe that in Delta Green official continuity, that site is guarded by the Cult of Transcendence. But certainly, if it's the Cult of Transcendence, it's already corrupt and evil, so they kind of let their um uh, their guard down. Or you can say that it's actually a, a Project Pisces, which is the British government's mythos fighting uh, agency, that it's a Project Pisces no-go zone, and that there's some co- sort of corruption in Pisces, or perhaps... Uh, a combination of the two, that it's officially Pisces, but Cult of Transcendence has got their own man, uh, actually running it. And you can do a sort of equator mass, uh, type adventure in this giant, uh, facility in the middle of the Western desert that is also producing horrifying grimoires written in absolutely indestructible paper, which is what the great race of youth wrote all their books on. And finally, Ken, what is the Summerton man case? Summerton man needs his own episode, I think, but he shows up, he washed up, on the beach, or was found dead on the beach. I guess we don't even know he washed up, but he was found dead on the beach in December nineteen forty-eight. Again, possibly as a trade for some unknown prime minister, uh, and he has in his pocket the last page of a copy of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Uh, so the word tamam shud is written on a scrap of paper. On that scrap of paper, which is Persian for finished. And that's it. That's what we know. And there is a million uh, versions of, of theory about it. There's, there's a whole book about it that I think Dennis Detwiller gave me one. There's all manner of, of stuff about it. And it's just a one dead guy. And it is, and because again, worrying about your actually vanished prime minister would be too hard or something. Australians have gone in, gone yard on figuring out what this dead guy is doing with, uh, Rubiat in his pocket. In 1948, and was he a spy? Was he a time traveler? Was he a mystic? Who knows? In
0: that case, let's uh, let's consider that a teaser. I'll take that and I will paste it into my future episodes list uh, under Liptany Hut, and we will put a pin in that, and then we will uh, head through this commercial. But we're going to uh, continue around the rough subject matter of the 1960s and uh, dive deeper into Vietnam.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet built aircraft that touched the edge of space and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's
0: more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh, boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos.
0: A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy
1: the unnatural. In the Fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions.
0: Written by Kenneth Hite, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine.
1: The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world
1: falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In gumshoe. What are you waiting for?
1: The end of the world...
0: The mug shots up on the wall and the filing cabinet full of cold cases tell us that we're once more looking at the crime blotter. And in this case, uh, Ken, we've got a classic gangster story uh, that uh, dovetails perfectly with Fall of Delta Green. And I assume uh, you researched this more while writing Fall of Delta Green.
1: I uh, researched this specifically while writing uh, the Saigon 1968 Looking Glass and as you know, when I write these little looking glass guides to a, to a city, I try and describe what the organized crime situation is. And I discovered Die Cafe and I was so excited because right. this guy, when Vietnam starts making movies, and I think they are just beginning to start making movies, uh, for national, global release now.
0: Yes. Uh, there, there are some uh, Vietnamese action movies and boy, does this follow the classic gangster movie pattern. Every
1: movie out of Vietnam, every gangster movie out of Vietnam is going to be about this guy. This guy, this is the, this is going to be the Al Capone story. It's just going to be telling Scarface. This is Vietnam Scarface. right?
0: Because all, all the gangster movie tropes uh, was, the come from Warner Brothers. They were ripping things out of the headlines and it turns out that uh, patterns persist over time and place. Yeah.
1: It's weird not to get all Cesar Lombroso on you, but <laughs> yeah.
0: So, uh, Die Cafe, uh, is the name of, uh, someone who had a meteoric rise from, uh, being a shoeshine boy and a fruit thief to king of the Saigon underworld in the 1960s. He was, uh, uh considered number one gangster for a while, but it was a very short while. He was one of the four great kings. And, uh, the, I gotta say branding. Uh, in that area of the world around, uh, gangsters has always been, uh, top notch. So. Yeah.
1: And then, then the, the sad thing of course is that his, his meteoric rise ends in 1967. He's, he's done for just before he could be in my book. So <sighs> or in my supplement. So that's, that's the payment that I get for my work. Right. But yes, Die Cafe, uh, his real name is von Die. Uh, he was, as you say, he was a uh, son of a gambler and and a gangster and all kind of thing. He's raised in poverty. His dad dies in the war.
0: His dad turns
1: revolutionary. So you've got that theme going on there. Exactly. He, uh, goes out on the street selling newspapers and begins to collect amongst himself a gang of local boys. And according to what I read, the reason that he would collect the boys is if you didn't bring in enough thief money, he wouldn't punish you for having a bad day. And, when he got thief money, he'd share it out.
0: He's, he's a sympathetic gangster compared to all of the other murderers, again, right. making him a perfect uh, movie protagonist. We like this guy better than his rival. And so
1: then this makes him be sort of the king of the, of the juvenile, of the kid gangster set there in Saigon in uh, District uh, uh, 4. He's, he's, he's growing up um, uh, on the, on the mean streets and the cops have their eye on on young Dai Cathay. is named that, by the way, after the Cathay Movie Palace, which is where he hangs out.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a standing set that they can borrow from uh, Shaw Brothers to do that sequence.
1: Right. And then so then the cops are like, we have to break this kid because he's obviously a threat to us. So they get him, and they have him there in front of all of his other gang, and they say, you have to eat a live cockroach. And the live cockroach is in Saigon, and certainly in mythic, Gangster movies Saigon are probably as long as your arm. They're enormous. It's not like a little tiny, you know, America cockroach or even a big old hand sized Texas cockroach. This is a big old monster and die eats it without flinching and then faints dead away. And that means he keeps face with his gang and the cops are like, Oh, he doesn't rat out his, he's being asked to rat out his gang and he's not doing right. it. Right. And, and, and they're like, um, well now great. We've, we've made him a legend. We'd better put him in a uh, reform school. And reform school, right, of course. Because
0: Reform School in Saigon in the nineteen sixties is not all at all a place that's going to prepare him for a harder criminal career and allow him to meet up with his uh, rest of his supporting cast. Is it,
1: Ken? No, no. Otherwise it would have a nickname like the birthplace of thugs. Oh, that is that is its nickname. I don't know if they had that carved over the door, but that's that's what it was. The Thu Duck Juvenile Reformatory. So he gets out, he he makes some friends. Uh, goes out and begins to, uh, resume his power and, uh, begins to have running, uh, fights with an earlier gang that, that tried to take his rackets and then begins to move into nightclubs and everything. And it's around this time that he gets a sidekick named Johnny Huang, also known as Johnny Sayonara, because that is the song <laughs> that he sang. He's a singer at, at the nightclubs. <laughs> In uh, Cholon, well, When this movie becomes so
0: popular that they need spinoffs, Johnny Sayonara right. is going to have to be one of those movies, okay. right?
1: Johnny Sayonara is going to be such a character in this uh, thing. But he makes all manner of—he uh he starts opening casinos, and then the other gang leaders in uh, Saigon are like, Well, we can't have this. This is not right.
0: This guy's 20 years old, and he, he controls— one of the, uh, the districts, one of the crime districts of, of uh, right. Saigon.
1: So, well, it's, it's an actual district, but yes, he controls the crime in it. Right. And so the, the, uh, the other gangs are like, we're going to have to bring him down. And so they all agree to hire swordsmen to go kill Die Cafe. Right.
0: And, and is the main guy, Ken, it can't possibly be, Ken, that the main guy in this story would also be a super colorful uh, gangster who is a, uh, a, proficient at kung fu and has an awesome nickname
1: could it uh no no that's that's um uh actually that's the head of the triad um in cholan and his name is tin manam and he is in fact a shaolin kung fu master right Um, uh, and his nickname is crazy horse because that was the name of his triad so um uh there you go uh, you've already got a brand opportunity. So he and, and the Cholan gangs are going at it. Cholan is the Chinese section of, of Saigon. It's actually, it's a sister city. Right.
0: And because he's Chinese in the movie, you can have like Simon Yam or Tony Leung play him. So, exactly.
1: Yeah. Before the, the throwdown with Tin Manam happens, the other Vietnamese gangsters in Saigon go after him and they send, as I mentioned, swordsmen to kill him. But Die Cathay beats off the swordsmen and wounds them or kills them, depending on the story, and I think in the movie they he's gonna kill them, and then begins to show up at the houses of the other main mobsters. The three kings still wounded.
0: Right. He doesn't he doesn't stop to heal.
1: None of this none of this daily rest. Cure light wounds nonsense. T, Kai, and Thay are the are the three uh, uh, kings of Saigon, and so he begins wounding them. He doesn't kill them; he just stabs them and then vanishes. And then he stabs Kai, and then Thay is like, "You know, what? we should have a summit." We should all just meet and <laughs> wait, and uh, maybe he'd miss the next time. So they—if if there's three gangster leaders, one of them is going to be the smart one, right? Yes, and so the, they they have the meeting and they agree to make the three kings the four great kings, with Die as the greatest of the kings, and that's Die, Cafe, T, Kai, and Thay. Uh, and they being the smart one is of course fourth. So the um that is at roughly the same the, the time after they have that settlement that he begins to move in on Tin Manam uh in Cholon and he sends his men into the triad casinos and just busts them up. And uh Tin Manam is is already sort of um on the back foot there, but he fights back and basically uh, he, he puts up such a good fight that they agree to divide the city and to leave the triads in Cholan, but that the triads aren't going to try anything in Saigon. Now, everything is going great until Johnny Sayonara gets the idea to rob the American military payroll, because by now it's 1965 and the Americans are coming in and it's 1966. And so Johnny Sayonara, who's been radicalized, says, let's rob the American military payroll.
0: Are you saying that the that his sidekick is a
1: loose cannon? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he's a, he's a beautiful loose cannon. And so he says, let's, let's rob the, the American military pr- payroll. And, and Daikete says, no, that's a terrible idea. And Johnny Sayonara goes and does it anyway, or he tries to, he fails and he is, uh, captured. And then that is what makes, uh, the secret, the head of the secret police alone, who's the guy, if you, if you have, three photographs from the vietnam war you have the helicopters going off the roof you have the little kid running from the napalm and you have the Viet Cong uh, infiltrator being shot in the head the guy shooting that guy is loan he's the head of the vietnamese secret police south vietnamese secret police and you know you can do anything you want but the american military payroll pays his bills so he doesn't want that happening right. so now loan turns against Di right. and the word is out He's going to get arrested.
0: And, and there's a scene between the two of them where uh, Lone says, y- you think you're the gangsters. There's been an upgrade in the ecosystem, and and the day of the gangster is
1: ended. I think is what he's going to tell uh, Dyke. He probably says something like that. Yeah, and, and he probably says it right about the time that you see like American helicopters mm-hmm. all coming in yeah. for a landing or something. And so um uh, there's a, a, a another incident in which um one of uh, Lone's subordinates is killed by one of Dai's men, and that is possibly in the course of this robbery, or possibly it's something else. Depends on how the movie shakes out. I'd, I'd put it over the robbery. So they take him to the famous Kansan Island which is the island prison uh where the fa- where the infamous tiger cages were used against uh prisoners of war and uh dissidents and apparently gangsters and it's Fuquok prison which was an unescapable prison and he was put onto this uh into this prison and of course he escapes from it and he escapes in early 1967 and so they're leaving the camp But uh, as they're leaving the camp, they get turned around in all the confusion and instead of running towards the beach where they can get away, they run into the inland and apparently disappear and are never heard from again or possibly are gunned down by the South Vietnamese army. Either one of those is a great ending to our story, uh, depending on if we want him to come back in, in secret for some other sort of weird thing. Yes.
0: Yeah, so you can have the coda where it turns out he's uh, alive in Macau with a mustache.
1: Exactly. He's turning around and, you know, um, uh, he hears the song sayonara, come on, the, or he pays the, the girl to sing sayonara at the, at the bar. So he's, he's 27 when he's um, uh, gunned down on uh, uh Kansan Island and, that's the end of Die Cafe.
0: And do, do we know what happened to Johnny Sayonara? Uh,
1: Johnny Sayonara was apparently killed during the attempted heist of the U.S. Army payroll. Ah,
0: uh, that's what happened to the loose cannons. Exactly. The Ed Norton character is gunned <laughs> down. Oh, man. Well, uh, I think on on that note, uh, we can all uh, uh, just hurry up Vietnamese uh, film industry. Um, make this movie. We've already seen it in our heads, but we actually do, do <laughs> want to see it. Uh, and it's time for us. Uh, to uh, head on through this commercial to see uh, what lies on the other side. The Best of Aspphageln is now available at
1: DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six guns role playing game western. How do you say "slap leather
1: varmint" in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvagel on drive through. Protect this podcast from the well-known threat of poison kangaroos by joining such Patreon backers as Ben Brigoff, Roger
1: Edge, Anders Moline, Jeff Cars, and Jean Francois Paradis.
0: Okay, it's time once again for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. And we're still working our way through the uh, rich motherload of our Yellow King panels at CarcosaCon. And this is the uh, point in our uh, second panel, the one about the Yellow King uh, mythos. And don't at me and tell me it was actually the first panel. This is irrelevant to our uh, needs here. Um, <laughs> and this is the point where we're, uh, we're talking about the king in yellow, first of all, as intentional villain who, unlike uh, Cthulhu, who we were talking about at the end of the the last segment, uh, is indifferent uh, to us. The king in yellow uh, cares enough about us to want to come and kill us. And from then, uh, we move on into an example of uh, building out uh, from the four stories that Chambers left us into a, a broader series of uh, stories, and that example is my short story collection, New Tales of the Yellow Sign. So uh, let's go back in time and see what we're talking about at CarcosaCon. But as storytellers, it is uh, more potent to have uh, villains who want to do something, and it's not entirely clear uh, what it is from uh, that the Yellow King uh, wants to do. He does represent... Uh, in a way, a cosmic or elemental force, but that force is not wind or, or water or ancientness or being a gate, uh, but rather a force of irrationality. Uh, and we, uh, can sort of impute this, uh, onto him from the effect of the, uh, book about him and what it does. And when I started to approach the, uh, the Chambers uh, stories as the basis for, uh, New Tales of the Yellow Sign, as many authors have done, uh, before me, uh, with their own uh, Chambers-inspired works, and many authors will do, have done and will do later, uh, it seemed very rich territory for a lot of horror that I find uh, personally interesting because the idea and uh, it's become even more timely since. We now, of course, live in a world uh, where people wearing yellow are hitting the streets in weird conspiracies that they don't even necessarily know the full ideology of. Uh, where there can be a mob hit on a member of the Gambino family and initially think, oh, look, the mob wars are heating up again. But then it turns out it's this sort of loser neighbor guy who was infatuated with one of his daughters, and he, he killed him for that reason. And he shows up in court, and he's written a weird sign on his palm, the sign of Q. Well, that's, that's the yellow sign. All of this stuff is actually really happening and, and, and says uh, something about the state... Of our society now more than it did in uh, in 1895 or in 1925 it's becoming uh, more and more about we've gone I think we can argue that we've gone through the information age now we're in the post information age so in this story uh, or in this short story collection I wanted a high variance because it's a it's not an anthology of multiple authors it was all by me so I wanted the stories to all have uh, very different feelings and tones and voices uh, and so one of the things that I did was look at different time periods to set it in. I didn't do anything in the 1895 setting, uh, but uh, I, uh, for example, based in classic manner on a weird, creepy dream I had that left me freaked out afterwards, uh, there is a story set in an imaginary alternate reality war in 1947 in Europe, and uh, that uh, then becomes the basis for one of the settings in the Yellow King role-playing game. There are stories that are sequels to the Repairer of Reputations, giant asterisks, if you imagine that the events of the Repairer of Reputations actually happened, which it is clear from the actual story to the extent that anything is clear that they are the imaginings of someone who suffered a head injury, uh, but that story is so much more layered now as an alternate future gun wrong from 1920. And then I added the additional layer of well, what happens a hundred years later? What is the world like? Uh, and so it envisions uh, what... And, and it's also an inversion of that story because in the story the conspiracy is thwarted, but in... The continuity that I begin to establish in some of these stories, the conspiracy was victorious and, uh, Hildred Castain became the first emperor of America. And then that allows us to operate in, a, a, so, so the stories were about dealing, uh, with, uh, the totalitarian oppression of a, uh, yellow sign inflected, uh, political system. And then also there are, uh, yellow sign stories set in the modern world. So for example, what is the equivalent of a play that drives you uh, beyond ordinary comprehension. Well, there's an app called the Distress- Distressing Notification app that you sign up for, and it just sends you weird, terrible little notes about yourself. And then, of course, in the, as the story goes on, it, the app seems to know a little bit too much about uh, the narrator. Uh, Ken Arthur, uh, in the process of doing annotations for the Yellow King you looked into the broader corpus of writers who are also sort of creating an interrelated uh, mythos and what stood out for you there?
1: I mean the Yellow King basically can be before and after John Tynes. Uh, Before Tynes the only really great successor to Chambers is a story called River of Night's Dreaming by the great Carl Edward Wagner who if you don't know him is one of the unsung heroes of American horror fiction. And River of Night's Dreaming is his version of Casilda and Camilla's unconventional home life, I guess I can say, without spoiling anything. And that's very much about language, and it, it is, in its way, a story about decadence. In the same way that Chambers is writing a story about decadence, but where Chambers is writing horror stories about decadence, Wagner is sort of showing the other side of it. And then John Tynes comes along and writes a, a series of, of short stories called uh, Bradalbin, Sesostris, and um, what's the third one in this? Ambrose. And those are ri- written at the same time that he's writing two essays, one called The Road to Halley" and one called The Haster Mythos, that basically act as the seed pearl for this transformation of Haster in gaming culture from Derlethian squid alien to Embodiment of entropy and, uh, despair. Tynes' Haster is, is not, uh, or Tynes's Yellow King is not necessarily Robin's Yellow King, but they are both truer to Chambers and more relevant to the 21st century. Then after Tynes, and I'm not sure that he's necessarily the, the key that turns it, but it is after Tynes that you see a huge uprush in yellow mythology, uh, short stories, uh, a, A mediocre uh, writer and pretty good editor named Joe Pulver has made sort of a career of assembling Yellow King anthologies. There's another uh, couple of very, very good ones um, by some people. Uh, The great uh, Brian Keene, who is one of those guys who operates on the if I write enough material, the 10% that are great is going to be a really big corpus of work. And he has a very good Yellow King story called uh, The King in Yellow, in which an Elvis impersonator stars in an experimental play. Uh, that ruins the lives of everyone who sees it, um, and it's a, it, it's a, it's a basically it's a retelling of the King and Yellow story, but again for the sort of hipster theater scene. I think uh, King's story actually could take place in Robin's universe very, very much. Um, there's a lot of very similar uh, a- approaches to that, and I wrote my own King and Yellow story called La Musique de L'Ennui, which is a crossover that uh, the world needed between the King and Yellow and the Phantom of the Opera. Um, and so it's about a, a woman who is obsessed with Phantom of the Opera fandom uh, who, because she is desperately trying to reach the Bella Epoque, reaches the Bella Pac, but not the good one. And it's sort of, uh, to the extent it's, it's about anything, it's about fan culture and nostalgia and how you shouldn't let that run your life. But yep. also it's a cool excuse to make up cool shit about Gaston LaRue. The, uh, there's a couple of threads to pull on here.
0: Uh, one of them is that I think it's telling that uh, John, who's writing in the 90s, uh, focus on despair yeah. as the uh, key point of the uh, Yellow King. Uh, and whereas I'm looking at him a little bit later and going, oh, uh, reality going sideways yeah, and people sense entropy. Sent- entropy <laughs> yeah. uh, well, not, not even entropy, but irrationality. Right, like the, yeah. And that the force of a bad idea can cause supernatural harm in the world. And one of those reflects uh, 90s culture and another mm-hmm. one reflects things... Uh, that were beginning to happen when I was writing those
1: stories and really started happening after I wrote them. And, um, of course, the interesting and fun thing, to me at least, is that your interpretation of The Yellow King is very similar to Chambers's, in that he's also very explicitly writing about a bad idea that causes harm in the world, and his bad idea was artistic modernism. Mm-hmm. And if you did it, it was going to ruin everything, and you shouldn't did it. And Robin, of course... Uh, not uh, being uh, a guy who knew Monet and Gauguin and thought that they were going off on the wrong foot <laughs> being rather the opposite of that, uh, still finds his way back to Chambers' uh, original uh, use for the Yellow King is, is delightful to me. Have you found
0: the yellow sign? The King in Yellow. Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired
1: millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing in a leather cover in the black snakeskin
0: pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage.
1: Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated king in yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com.
0: It's time once again to enter that most ambiguous of huts. The hut that we're not really sure where it falls in between uh, magic and just regular history and strangeness. And oh, but wait a minute. There in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're sipping a kombucha together, and they're, uh, as usual, slating the reptoids. We look out the window, we see the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and that tells us we're once more in the Elliptony hut. And uh, this time around, we have uh, sort of an obituary uh, section of the Elliptony hut because uh, Stanton Friedman, who is sort of the paradigmatic... Nuts and bolts uh, UFO ufologist uh, passed away uh, just in May. In fact, he uh, he was an American, but he lived uh, for many years in Fredericton, New Brunswick, here in Canada. And um, he actually passed away uh, at Pearson Airport here in Toronto, which is uh, now my new personal nightmare, now that I know that that's a thing. That, of course, can happen. But, uh, yeah. Ken, I'm sure you've run across Stanton Friedman many a time, and he appears in many of the books on Ken's bookshelf. Uh, so you want to uh, start uh, telling the Stanton Friedman story?
1: I mean, the Stanton Friedman story, I mean, I, it's sort of a, a beautiful link between us because he went to the University of Chicago, and then he found love and moved to Canada, where he died in Pearson Airport. So sort of a Ken and Robin story already. Uh, he got a degree in physics, Worked as a nuclear physicist for the private sector for General Electric and Westinghouse and McDonnell Douglas and all kinds of other companies. And some of what he did was good old nuclear reactors and some of it was, uh, top secret stuff for, uh, nuclear aircraft or for, uh, nuclear rockets or for, uh, nuclear power plants that might be used in a space, uh, satellite of some kind, perhaps a spy satellite. Who can say? And at some point circa 1970, he gets the UFO bug, and it, it's 1970 that he basically stops working for the the man full-time and becomes a consultant, so as to free up more time for his burgeoning flying saucer hobby. Right. And, and, and the man being various blue-chip corporations, so he's worked for G- Right, yeah, the military-industrial complex. Right. He did not hours. work for the literal man. He worked for the man's guy who gives the man... He worked for the man's Lucius Fox. part of the man that right. makes the money... Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the beak-wetting part of the military-industrial complex. Yes. Um, and then so anyway, he uh got bit by the flying saucer bug and he used the term flying saucer. He said, lots of things are unidentified flying objects, but I'm interested in flying saucers. Uh He believed that they were physical craft that came from outer space, probably using uh, magnetohydrodynamic propulsion, at least in the atmosphere. One assumes that he assumed they had some sort of faster-than-light uh, wormhole-type drive for space, although I don't think he really bothered himself that much about how that worked. He was like, oh, they're aliens, they figured it out. But he was very, very into uh such things as the Roswell incident, and he was one of the – he wasn't the first guy to make the Roswell part of modern mythology, but I think he was one of the guys who sort of re-kicked it off uh, in the 1980s, Uh, when he began to talk about Roswell and then he wrote his book about it.
0: It it was an obscure story in the annals of ufology for a long time. And then all of a sudden it bursts forth into the popular consciousness to the point of, you know, now being part of pop culture and TV series and so on. And he's the one who sort of
1: kicks off that second wave. Yeah. And he's also one of the people upon whom, uh, the majestic documents were dumped. The Majestic 12 revelations. So, so for the benefit of our, our listeners, uh, dig back right. a bit more into okay. 101 on that. Uh, The Majestic 12 documents are documents that purport to describe the establishment of a committee, codenamed Majestic, of the 12 top scientific minds of the day uh, by President Truman to study Roswell. And it is the nearly universal consensus, even amongst fairly hardcore UFO buffs, that Majestic 12 documents are a fraud and that they were a fraud perpetrated either by the U.S. Air Force in a fey mood or by a fraudster who wanted to get attention and uh, at one remit, as hoaxers always do. Right.
0: And and this brings me to, to my pet theory, what did which pet is theory? I think there was a disinformation graduate course on military intelligence and the assignment one year was to hoax
1: Stan Friedman. Right, that, that he was the, <laughs> he was the guy in the slide. Gentlemen, your target is this guy.
0: Yeah. If, if you, if you pass this, uh, then you can move on and we'll, we'll turn you loose on the Soviets. But, uh, uh th- this guy, he's a, he's a respectable physicist. He's a science guy. Uh, but, uh, here's where you, uh, learn to identify his, uh, his, the things that he wants to be true and, uh, <laughs> Pick up some documents and see how they work on him.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, he fought a lonely battle, uh, increasingly lonely towards the end to say that the majestic documents were real. And then when even his research proved that at least one of them was no question a forgery because he found the document that it was literally traced from, he says, Oh, there's some disinformation in it, but if you can. Figure out the real core of the documents. They've released a cloud of disinformation around the core. It was put in there to throw us off the truth. Then the core is codenamed MAGIC. M-A-J-I-C, not to be confused with M-A-G-I-C, which was an actual US government program to break the Japanese naval code. And of course, they used documents from Project MAGIC to make pretend Project Majestic. And so, Stanton Friedman was well into the second spiral of the Uzumaki by that point, but uh, God bless him. Um, that's one of the things that I, I like about Friedman is that he is good fun. His beliefs on UFOs are completely, you know, white-shoe respectable UFO beliefs. There's no uh, anti-Semitism. There's no creepy, grotesque uh, monstrosities. It's just there's aliens they crash sometimes. There's a government cover up. It's just straight up white bread ufology. And he makes that very engaging. He's got a, a good prose style. Right. He's uh, lucky in his co-authors as well. And he's just, he's just a straight up guy. And I enjoy reading his books, even when as with the majestic case, he is just way out in left field. And again, he believes, for example, that the uh, Roswell crash is actually one of a sort of a series of crashes in that era. And uh, for example, the Corona is the uh, location that he says the big U S program to, to gather up all the UFOs uh, went to that. That was where the, the real saucer came down and, and the little bits of foil uh, that were found in Roswell were sort of like bits of it. So he had sort of a, a fun take on Roswell that wasn't just the straight up, but it was, but it was still a very straightforward uh, case. And he did a lot of, you know, very on the ground investigation of here are the names of the guys and here's the, you know, here's the locations that everyone says it happened and sort of lays it out very nicely. Uh,
0: And the closest he gets to this sort of weirder psychosocial edge of ufology is he does uh, defend the Barney and Betty Hill abduction because he wants to defend their star map as being accurate. right? And so that's bringing him a little closer to the to the weird stuff. But he's focused on the star map. Which is right. a provable science thing rather than, you know, what it means that they're, you know, the aliens are, are communicating by way of probing people. Um, and because of that, he was actually interestingly a foe of the SETI program, uh, which yeah. is, which is a delightful thing to have been a foe of. It's a
1: fun twist.
0: Yes. Uh, because of course the argument is we don't need to contact them. They're already here. Why are you trying to, you know, send uh signals into space to get their Seinfeld episodes. Uh they're 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 here already and they're showing us star maps. Why are you bothering with that uh, waste of resources when And you're, his argument
1: is that SETI was actually a government program that was designed to siphon off interest in UFOs. That if you know you're a scientist uh and you can study SETI and get a government grant, you'll do that instead of studying UFOs and not get a government grant. And so his argument is that SETI is a boondoggle uh, created intentionally to uh to weaken or destroy ufology and he had a special mad on for Carl Sagan.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that 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 villain Carl Sagan, that 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 blaggard who has his own problems, but it was at least pretty rational on the question of are there ufos and he used to task Carl Sagan for ignoring the empirical evidence of ufos, the blue book reports that say the more evidence there is in a given case – of the unidentified, uh, unidentified, even the ones where blue book doesn't know what's going on. He says, there's always tons of evidence there. And as a scientist, you should be wanting to investigate that instead of say there's nothing to see here. You're a bad scientist. You're just a TV personality and I'm jealous of you because I look like a happy gnome and you look like a movie star.
0: <laughs> um, so the, uh, annoyingly, uh, for our purposes of incorporating him into, uh, uh, gaming, uh, he is, he gets interested in UFOs too late to be in fall of Delta Green unless you want to. Yeah prequelize him as... Because, of course, in the Fall of the Delta Green universe, Majestic 12 is super real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's already in art gaming because of his uh, popularization of, of that uh, story and his popularization of uh, Roswell. But as a figure who appears in a
1: game, uh what well, would be in, in 1968, he does testify to Congress... That he believes UFOs are real.
0: So he, he just hasn't gone full bore yet. So he can be an He hasn't hasn't gone,
1: he hasn't gone, gone full, uh, gray yet. He's, he's still maintaining a plausible cover life as a fight. So
0: he can be, he can be the deep throat for the characters leading them to Majestic
1: 12 if they don't already know about it or? Or he can be the guy who's stumbling, uh, investigations threatened to uncover something about Majestic 12, but reveal just enough that the players can, uh, follow in and then they have to keep uh NRO Delta from just murdering him because they're like, that would be too obvious. And also he's our source now.
0: <laughs> so uh that gives us a, an obvious uh, uh gaming um use for him. Uh is there anything we've that we've missed that we want to cover?
1: I mean, the sad part of it is that I mean, either just because he's getting old or because this is what always happens to crazy people, he starts to drift in the very tail end of his life, you know, in, in like this decade. And starts to buy, you know, all kinds of alternative medicine and and Reiki and God knows what kind of nonsense, because he's so fixated on the fact that the scientific community is covering up UFOs that he makes the even more unsupported argument that if they're covering up UFOs and I know UFOs are real, they're covering up, you know, laetrile or whatever. And so laetrile must be real. And it's like, that's not even logic. Even in granting your postulate that UFOs are real and there's a cover-up doesn't mean that every cover-up is covering up something real. But it does tend to be a, a habit of brain of conspiracy theorists, that they can't just be happy to explain that JFK was killed by, you know, Fletcher yeah. Prouty when, or whoever.
0: Once you untie the line to consensus reality... Yeah, suddenly you're digging around in a pizza basement. Right. Well, on, the, on that topical note, I think we yes. can uh, declare uh, this episode... And this is a very thematic episode. We have a lot of... uh uh connections uh, between ufo's and abductions and v- vietnam in the 60s uh so uh let's be less thematic next week somehow uh when we return uh for yet another episode Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask Ark Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy
1: Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Ensure that this podcast remains an identified object to join such Patreon backers as... Joshua Brumley. Michael Bowman. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Andrew Laliberti. And Andrew Miller. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash
1: user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered two dozen of our latest design, Valkyrie Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when,
0: once again, uh, we will talk about stuff.